Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in experts and authors to help writers of all genres compose more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, debut author Peter Mann steps into the interrogation room to try getting his story straight. For this episode, debut author Peter Mann steps into the interrogation room to try getting his story straight. Peter has a PhD in modern European history and is a recipient of the Whiting Dissertation Fellowship. He teaches history and literature at Stanford and the University of San Francisco. He's also a graphic artist and publishes a regular online comic strip called The Cahody Syndrome. The Torqued Man is his first novel, and it releases on January 11th. Peter, thank you for coming on the show. It's an absolute honor to have somebody with your credentials and with the acclaim of this debut novel on the show to, to share your thoughts and your process with us, sir. Well, thanks so much, Gavin. I'm delighted to be here. For folks who haven't heard about The Torqued Man or don't have an advanced copy of it, what would you like listeners and readers to know about this incredible book? Uh, well, it's a, uh, a novel about the double life of an Irish spy during World War II in, in uh, Nazi Berlin. And it tells this story, basically, there are two found manuscripts. They're found in the rubble by American occupying forces at the end of the war in 45. And one of those manuscripts is the journal of, uh, of a, a spy handler. Um, his name is Adrian de Groot. And he's been in charge of this Irish spy named Frank Pike. De Groot's chronicling basically uh, his relationship with Pike over the course of the war. And during, and, and he's writing this journal from the bunker, uh, of a base, basement bunker during the bombing of Berlin later in the war in, in 43. So it looks backward. The other manuscript is uh, ostensibly by the Irish spy himself, Frank Pike, but it's written as a third person kind of somewhat fictionalized narrative. Uh, it's telling him the exploits of Finn McCool, his alter ego, his, his legendary Celtic mythical hero alter ego. And mm -hmm. it tells uh, of a very different story of what he's been up to during the course of the war. Uh, whereas in Adrian's narrative, Frank Pike seems to have made this deal with the devil, joined mm -hmm. causes with the Germans, and then kind of left to rot in Berlin. The, 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 excuse me, the manuscript of Finn McCool tells the story of, of a kind of one-man insurgency and assassination campaign of, of high-ranking Nazi doctors right up to the top, including Hitler's own personal physician, Theodor Morel. Oh, from a craft perspective, it's become really common in uh, a lot of different genres now to have a first-person point of view character and then the rest of the book in third. And I reading through this, have to imagine that Finn McCool might have been born a little bit out of that necessity to avoid two first-person narratives? Uh, you know, it wasn't as strategic as that. Um, it, it, it definitely did helpful work. I can see why that's become a trend you've observed, um, because I think there, there's something, you know, to have two first-person narratives, you're, you know, like a first-person narrator, you're, you're stuck with that person's perspective for better or for worse. It's a bit mm -hmm. of a double-edged sword. So the third person is helpful as a way to kind of cover more. But uh, this one, I, I knew it had that, that the kind of Finn perspective, the Pike perspective, mm -hmm. if you will, had to be told third person because it was a sort of mock epic voice. Mm -hmm. So that, that kind of arose out of necessity. Yeah, and I, I really... Reading through this book, I there I probably have about three hours worth of questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, let him um, rip. That, yeah, um, but I I am really intrigued 
by this story and the way that you've constructed it, it is such an original way to tell this type of story. And you've done such an incredible job of crafting these characters so that even from the first person perspective of one and the first third person perspective, the alter ego of, of the other, that we still get a pretty holistic picture of who these people are as complex and relatable characters. And I, I have to imagine that wasn't a small undertaking. Yeah, well, th thanks so much. I'm I'm really glad that that you appreciated those aspects of it. Um, it it was a challenge, but it was uh, mostly a, a, a I mean, certainly a, a fun challenge. Even if you know, of course, the, it's not all it's not all uh, uh, laughs all the way there. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, the way it worked for me was I, you know, I I had I started with Adrian's journal, so the first person chronicling his relationship, and I wrote, I think I wrote maybe a hundred pages worth. So not the, the entirety of Adrian's journal, but a good down payment on it before I even tried to enter into Finn's voice. That Now that did a number of things for me. It kind of set up um, certain aspects of the plot, established a relationship between the two men and, and gave us a specific account of the series of events and, and Adrian's take on their relationship and what transpired. So then when I went to the Finn voice, it was really fun um, and, and maybe not as challenging as it might seem on the surface it to, to kind of uh, use Finn's perspective as a reaction to those, in mm -hmm. some ways an undermining in certain subtle ways, <laughs> right? A yeah. kind of re retelling of those uh, events in, in, a, in, in a somewhat different, sometimes substantially different manner. So it was a lot of fun to kind of interlock the two voices through a kind of counterpoint method, if you will. Mm -hmm. And these characters, um, I definitely don't think I would really care to have either of these guys as my neighbor um, or, uh, or a brother-in-law. And, you know, so you've also accomplished a pretty sizable feat in making these characters sympathetic and, and relatable when in real life, they probably wouldn't be um, uh, looking at, 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 at more of a superficial perspective. And I'm, I, I really appreciate how well you did that. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, that's one of the things I personally love about fiction is how we can, you know, empathize with unsavory characters. Like you said, people we would not want to have in our family or even live next door to. Uh, there's maybe a case to be made. I think I could, in the right circumstances, be happy to have a beer with Frank Pike. <laughs> yes, circumstantially. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hear, yeah, hear a few good anecdotes and jokes. But, um, excuse me. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I really wanted to to, to kind of tell a story, you know, in the ambiguities, in the gray area, um, in, in the cracks of, of people's complex characters and the complex relationships between them. And, um, and I did, you know, come to, I think every author probably comes to love his or her characters, mm -hmm. no matter who they are, but uh, certainly as, as flawed people, but, but maybe redeemable people. As one of the I guess probably bigger, more recurring topics in um, in writing for especially for fiction um, or you know topics around genre expectations and kind of writing to market as a not a, as a negative thing, but just as to I think from the perspective of meeting 
meeting reader expectations with obligatory scenes and those types of considerations for what readers expect to get out of a certain type of story. Mm. And this book crosses, it's such a Venn diagram of different types of story that it it's, I think, also becoming a lot more a lot more prevalent in the marketplace for these types of stories that are, are really truly cross genre. Um, and I, I wonder how you thought about or considered making sure that the, the reader who looked at this and was interested ended up being really satisfied by the book. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's something that I didn't, wasn't really at the forefront of my mind while writing it. I, I just had to you know, write the story as it developed in my brain, uh, both from like initial seed ideas and then, you know, s- strange spontaneous developments in, in the process. Um, I, I kind of, I, I certainly knew I was writing a novel about spies since mm-hmm. I, I was modeling it after, right, this relationship between a, a, an Irish spy and his German spy handler during the war. So that was built into it. But at the same time, I never really thought of myself as writing a spy novel, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've, I've read some espionage and really enjoyed it, but I wouldn't say that's a, a genre I uh, have dove too deeply into. Um, so I, I, I was kind of, I knew I was partaking of certain genres. Um, uh, I, I also thought like, well, maybe as I was after kind of, by the time I'd finished writing, I was like, maybe this is a thriller. But again, that wasn't something I was conscious of as well. So all that stuff is kind of ex post facto for me in terms of which, <laughs> you know, which genre it gets. And I think a lot of that is kind of really up to the work of, of who's marketing it and how it's being discussed, mm-hmm. less so the writing of it. Um, but but at the same time, I was I was conscious that I, I was kind of genre straddling, partaking of certain conventions and maybe undermining them at the same time or, or playing with them, maybe. And it was it was great fun. Um, I was really that I mean, my only guiding light, I think, was to just write the kind of story I wanted to read uh, that I hadn't quite seen in order, you know, and how I wanted to tell this particular tale, which for me was a, a mashup of a couple kind of disparate things, maybe neither of which um, is apparent in terms of the genre conventions it plays with. But I think one of my, my, my two guiding lights in terms of what I was putting together here, one was Thomas Mann's novel, Dr. Faustus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, written right after World War II, and kind of like giving an account of Germans, Germany's descent into Nazism, and it's told in a, in a very strange manner, in the sense that it's uh, one that I, 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 be quite honest, kind of stole, which is that it's told, uh, it's the life of, of a composer, a man named Adrian Leverkuhn, and in some ways my character's name Adrian is a bit of an homage to, to that, um, but it's, it's his life story told by his friend his friend who also maybe harbors more intimate feelings for him than, than Adrian, who's fairly mm-hmm. aloof, right? Detached figure has for him. So I, I really liked that. And then I very quickly with the idea of, of, of the Finn manuscript uh, landed on um, in some ways kind of uh, paying homage to a novel by Flann O'Brien from 1939 called At Swim Two Birds, great work of Irish modernism, hilarious and off kilter that uses a bit of this mock heroic voice about the, the legendary Celtic hero, Finn McCool. Um, and so I thought, oh, what if I took that voice and, and you know, really fleshed out and, and actually, and then dropped it in this seemingly incongruous environment uh, of, of, you know, uh, harrowing high stakes uh, in, in Nazi Germany and, and put those two together. So that was, my, that was my weird guiding point. So I, 
I think somehow uh, through the technology of the interweb, some of you're, you're somehow looking off of my notes here. But <laughs> the next thing that I, I was planning on, on asking based on uh, on some of this was what novels you would want to see your book shelved between. Um, do you would those two be it or would you like to see it standing next to others? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, well, I mean, I suppose physically you can't put a book between more than two other books, but um, I, I would love to have other books on the shelf around there. I think, because like you said, it, it, if you just put those two books together, you're missing a, a certain a, a, a certain espionage element, a certain, uh, so I mean, I would love to have, you know, Graham Greene or Le Carre somewhere mm. floating around on the yeah. shelf as well. Uh, one of the bigger takeaways, and I, I admittedly, I'm I, I'm only about halfway through the book at this point, but one of my takeaways from this so far from a craft perspective is that it seems that you've very uniquely kind of created these two characters who are in some ways antagonists and protagonists and the backdrop of the war itself and society and, and a lot of the authoritarianism, a lot of the, the things that these guys are trying to combat plays this other whole character. And I really enjoy how, how complex this is and, and how unique it is that it's not, it's not uh, clear cut good guys and clear cut bad guys. It's these very humans, uh, very flawed humans doing good and bad in, the, in pursuit of, of, of their own and sometimes other self-interest. Yeah, totally. I think that's well put. I, I uh, you know, I, I wanted to explore uh, the kinds of stories people tell about themselves, right, in order to construct their own identities, in order to kind of rationalize or justify uh, doing what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and <clears throat> inevitably, a place like Nazi Berlin during the war um, is is filled with these kind of entanglements of complicity and resistance off. I mean, oftentimes the complicity, there's, there's no resistance intermixed, but in these two characters, what I was interested in exploring is, is, is the kind of intersection of complicity and resistance and how, like you said, there's not, there, there are some purely villainous side characters here, but, mm-hmm. the, but the characters I'm interested in exploring are, are caught up in, 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 you know, webs of, of complicity and, and, and crimes and, and you know choices that they have to live with that carry unintended consequences that uh, you know reflect um, poorly on them, but at the same time they have this capacity to 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 resist within that. So it's I, I wanted to explore kind of the um, yeah just the, the the complexity of of how one. Uh, tried to make ethical choices there's a there's a, a moment in the book i don't know if you, you've reached this point yet um where pike is talking with adrian and he's talking about what he calls the damnness of choice mm. that is kind of damned if you do damned if you don't mm-hmm. which i which he, he's talking about to to illustrate the political polarization of mm. of the 30s leading up to the war and particularly the spanish civil war which both of them played uh, opposing roles mm-hmm. Uh, and this idea, right, that, that you know, we were in the Spanish Civil War, um, whichever side you chose for whichever reason that was, and there could have been a, a, a bunch of different reasons motivating you to say, side with Franco and the Nationalists or the Republic 
and 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 its whole ilk of socialists, communists, and anarchists, uh, as well as, as, as you know, liberals and social democrats. And so, but but because of the polarity of a war, you, you know, you end up kind of siding with um, with Stalin or Hitler, uh, based in terms of kind of who's running the show there on the ground. And and so I think these characters are caught in that web. They're they're people who are, uh, for example, like Adrian. He, he's a literary translator who, uh, if, it, 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 given these circumstances, if if you know if he hadn't been born into a world with uh, this kind of polarizing political environment and, and war it's very unlikely ever would have ended up working for the Obwehr for German military mm -hmm. intelligence and be caught in this role, um, uh, something he's kind of fallen into. And I think that that defines so, you know, life so much for so many intellectuals, um, people like both Adrian and Pike in the 30s and 40s who were kind of sucked into the vortex of politics. And that interests me a lot is, is people who kind of are, are kind of forced Forces maybe too strong a word, but who find themselves in these roles that they feel they've been swept up into, but of course are also the result of, of their own conscious choices and how they live with that and maybe rebel against that was something I was interested in. Now, with this being something of a historical fiction, I, I know it's not being definitely not being marketed in that exact manner, um, but uh, that general genre takes a, an incredible amount of research. Um, because a lot of those readers have expectations of, of real events and fictionalized, you know, narratives in, within that uh, kind of larger historical framework. Yeah. And in reading through this, it definitely feels like you really put that PhD to work <laughs> and, and, and have it. I'm glad it's used for something. About <laughs> <laughs> yeah. damn time. Yeah, yeah, and that there's this really incredible backdrop of historical fact, real events, real people, real details about those historical actors, and with these uh, inserted fictional characters who maybe help us hold up a mirror to ourselves and to others. Yeah, thank thanks for that. I'm glad that comes through. Um, so I should say right off the bat that. Uh, a lot of the work with the kind of the premise for this and the, and the, the, the kind of basic um, vessels for, for my characters was done for me by history. I think like mm -hmm. so many novels, especially working historical fiction, you know, the past is such a rich treasure trove of stories and characters that you, you can at least draw from and build upon. And so I was inspired, I got the, this seed of the idea for this novel based on a real historical figure named Frank Ryan, who's an Irish Republican and socialist, very much like Frank Pike, who, um, and, and really the, the kind of premise that sets up the novel and, and puts things in emotion it was, is, I, I lifted entirely from his actual biography, which was, he was an Irish Republican socialist who went over to Spain uh, in 36 to fight in the Spanish Civil War, to fight against fascism, gets captured, uh, sentenced to death, uh, uh, death sentence commuted, left to rot in Franco's prison for life until 1940, but who should show up, but the Germans, but the, the German military intelligence. And they offered him his freedom if he would agree to help coordinate the planned, uh, to kind of the, coordinate the Irish side of the planned German invasion of Britain. It's called Operation Sea Lion. Uh, this was in 1940, so fairly early in the war still. Um, of course, the invasion of Britain never happened, uh, mostly because Hitler turned his attention to the Soviet Union mm -hmm. by the early summer of 41. And so because 
the real historical figure Frank Ryan was recruited for those purposes. And, and, and there was some kind of um, almost, I, say, I was gonna say tragic, but it's really more tragic comic and some of them are outright comic attempts to, uh, to kind of do these Irish operations of, of, of uh, putting a combination of Irish and German agents on Irish soil um, they did a number of these. Uh, there was a, a kind of uh, incredibly catastrophic U-boat episode that I document in the novel early on that is also fairly lifted from Frank Ryan's actual biography. Um, and even, uh, long story short, Frank Ryan ends up rotting in Berlin. And so my, my entry point into the novel was really, what was a guy like Frank Ryan really up to in Berlin? And how can I make, you know, on, on that, uh, model on that kind of scaffolding of his life it, it both um, it fill in the gaps and imagine something kind of totally different um and, and and imagine a relationship between him and his spy handler as well as tell a story uh, a kind of scant one excuse me <clears throat> a kind of um uh slant one about uh you know from his perspective of what he was really up to that his spy handler was presumably not aware of at all and you mentioned about the uh history being so rich and full of characters and, and stories. And um, is uh, in my historical studies over the last few years, I probably don't go more than a few weeks without adding another post-it note to my, uh, my cork board next to the desk here with uh, another idea for another character or another historical fiction novel that um, I'm somehow supposed to carve time out to write when I don't have time for anything else. <laughs> I but, hear you. Yeah, it's it's just amazing how uh, to me how what a what a treasure trove, a uh, treasure chest, um, a real history is, and and there's already such uh, incredibly tantalizing little snippets that I think would make fantastic uh, fictionalized stories. Absolutely, I'm I'm with you. I have a, a long running list that it, it certainly more books than I can ever hope to write before I die. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Glean from from these enticing moments. Yeah, I'm gonna have to somehow uh, I don't know trademark the notes so that the uh, the estate gets to keep them when I pass. I guess <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to work out the the legal on that. Yeah. Or you um, could you know auction off the ideas for a pretty penny maybe while you're still alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's uh, need to hire some ghostwriters. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of ghostwriters. Are you are you available? <laughs> maybe we, maybe we could trade. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk. <laughs> um. For uh, on, on that note, I would have to imagine that there has to be another book in the works with uh, as well as this one has been received and, um, and the acclaim that it's already getting even pre-publication. Uh, yes, there, there is. You know, I, so as you mentioned, I, I got a PhD in history. I still teach in history, but kind of uh, history and literature a bit on the margins, which is actually quite suits me because I, I, I've kind of finally broken through and found my identity as a writer of fiction. And I feel uh, kind of uncaged, uh, mm -hmm. unbound in, in the world of fiction and just can't get enough. And so I have a lot, like, you, like we just talked about, I have a lot of ideas for future projects and uh, I'm just about through with uh, the next book, which is also historical fiction in, in, you know, in the broadest sense and I'm taking a, a bit of a detour away from the time and place. I just want to kind of cleanse my palate mm -hmm. from uh, World War II in Europe, even though I'm, I'm sure that I'm drawn back to that landscape, that moment eventually. 
but the next project is set in 1859 in the American West. And it actually is a mm. kind of Western noir meets comic adventure, I would say, uh, uh, that centers around the figure of, of the explorer, John Fremont. Yeah, that, uh, that genre in particular, I think, is still incredibly popular and incredibly underserved. Um, I, I think that uh, Western folks who are good at writing Westerns tend to find pretty incredible audience. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm especially with uh, something a, a little bit, uh, a couple degrees off at Top Dead Center with the, the comic uh, uh, aspects of that, I think would be a really unique and incredible story. Well, uh, th thanks for your vote of confidence. I hope so. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> you've, yeah, you've I, been, I agree. sell at least one. <laughs> exactly. I guarantee it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think the Western is, uh, it's, it's an evergreen, mm -hmm. you know, a kind of vein of American fiction and American identity. It's, it's you know, it's, it's where the, the myth, this myth of America that mm -hmm. is in some ways so toxic that um but also so essential to how we see ourselves so i think it it's only fitting that it be continually reimagined by by writers of fiction who we kind of see us because the west played such a crucial role but obviously the, the way we've kind of uh, imagined the west uh for the last 150 years and i think mm -hmm. there's obviously been some great revision in the last 50 years but but uh, i think there's room for even more and so uh, character John Fremont too is also this kind of legendary figure who's who's woven his way into the very fabric of, of American street names and rivers and cities and and yet I think he's also a figure that's become the people don't really know the, what the name corresponds to anymore so he struck me as kind of interesting uh, figure to to kind of bring back to life but to to uh, maybe tell beneath the the myth that brought him to such fame. Yeah, it is. Uh, um, I've got like five questions I want to ask simultaneously. So <laughs> it, it's, uh, yeah, it's really incredible to me how, how critical the myth of the West was in the formation of the, you know, early Republic and, and continues on through today when, you know, uh, you know, Kennedy's invoking, you know, the space as the new frontier and um, in one of his uh, final State of the Union addresses, Donald Trump was talking about still the, this unknown frontier. And, um, and a lot of the things that we associate with our own identity are really completely fictitious when you actually get down to looking at the, at the historical basis of it or the, the evidence. Um, but, it's, but it is, as, as you said, such a critical component of what makes uh, America a a, a thing, a, a unique entity uh, with a paradigm separate from that of the old world. Um, and it, it's really, really a fun thing, I think, to, to play with. Um, and it, yeah, I, it's incredibly interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. That's, that's part of what drew me to it. And I think that I, uh, I just, not that I have anything, in, um, you know, like the world could live without my thoughts on American history, but I felt like having, um, you know, spent time on this, on, on the Torch Man in, in Europe, uh, I was excited to kind of come home and connect some dots for myself in this, this crazy troubled country we live in now. And so it was, uh, that's kind of where I find myself. Uh, I'm originally from Kansas and I've lived in San Francisco for the last 
nearly 20 years. And so part of what I'm kind of interested in doing was uh, connecting the dots between Kansas and California, but doing it way back in the 1850s. Where can readers and listeners uh, stay in touch with, with you, with your works in progress, keep a track of any new publications and, and all things Peter Mann? Uh, best one-stop shopping for that is my website, petermanbooks.com. And uh, yeah, you find everything you need there. Uh, I also do some art. So if you're interested in seeing comics uh, or, or other graphic art, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to actually design the uh, the jacket illustration for the Torch Man. Um, you, can, you can find my stuff at pmania, just pman with two n's, ia.com. <laughs> I like that. Nice play. Thanks. <laughs> it's been an absolute honor having you on the show. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise and for uh, putting all the time, blood, sweat, and tears that went into uh, this incredible work of the Torque Man. This is a really unique story that deserves to be told. Thanks so much, Gavin. My pleasure to be here. Really, really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been acclaimed debut author Peter Mann. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.